Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. How does it happen? How do I get sensitized? How do I become repulsed with sin? Because godly people I recognize who see cancer in their life and eradicate it, those kinds of severely responding people, how do they do it? Well, they accept no excuses and they're always repulsed by sin. How do I get there? Spend more time with God. Is that a part of your schedule? I sure hope it's a part of your schedule. Have you ever assumed a person would react to a situation one way, but they surprised you by responding differently? Well, that's the focus of our study today on Focal Point. We're continuing our study in 2 Samuel chapter 4, and we've reached a scene where the people in David's circle assumed he'd be impressed by the murder of his opposer, Ishbosheth. But David had a different opinion. Well, here's Pastor Mike Fabares with the message titled, Dealing with Sin in Your Own Domain. Let's get started. In this kingdom, it would seem like David had everything to gain and nothing to lose by Ishbosheth dying, by Ishbosheth being murdered. I mean, this was a good thing. It would advance his kingdom. It was the last obstacle to him being the sole leader, the sole recognized solo king in the kingdom. Ishbosheth out of the way. These two guys, Rechab and Baana, were so confident that David would think this would be a good idea. They came and showed up, smiled at the king, had the head of Ishbosheth, said, Aren't you glad? We've done this, perhaps you can give me some kind of reward. I love David's response because David's response shows us that he is not going to make excuses, nor is he going to accept excuses for sin in his domain. You've done a bad thing. It may have benefited me. It may have been for good motives. You may have thought you were doing the kingdom a favor. Everyone was alarmed. The nation was in such an upheaval. I recognize you thought this was good, but this man was innocent and you walked in and killed him and that's wrong. And it's wrong because it's wrong, because it's wrong. And whatever your excuses, I do not accept them. David's upset. I've taken notes this morning. This is a wonderful response from our man after God's own heart. We've seen his ups, we've seen his downs. There's more ups and downs to come. But in this passage, he's shining brightly as a man after God's own heart, a man who when he hears and sees of sin in his domain, he's not going to accept any excuses for it. And that ought to be the pattern in our lives. Number one, you and I, when it comes to sin in our domain, in our lives, we cannot accept any excuses, except no excuses for sin in your life. Now, you're not a ruling monarch of an ancient Near Eastern kingdom, but you are called by God to be in charge of your body. With the Holy Spirit's help, relying on His strength, you are to be the master of your thoughts and of your body and what you do and the cravings of your life, and you're supposed to keep that under control. And the question is, when you see sin in your life, do you make excuses for it before God? I mean, you want to hear people that have heard every excuse in the book. Talk to some of our police officers here who've pulled people over. We're good at making excuses. I got lots of excuses for why I do what I do. Number two, back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Not only does David bypass all the possible excuses why killing Ishbosheth was a good idea, he, in verse number 11, puts it in such an emphatic way. It expresses to us in the language that, that is chosen here. It reflects his attitude. Look at it, verse 11. 
He says, I killed that Amalekite for telling me that it was a great thing that Saul is dead. How much more, verse 11, when, I love this, underline it, wicked men have killed, underline it, an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed. I mean, he just calls a spade a spade. You may see it's a good strategic move, it's a wonderful military move and all that, but here's what it really is. I can recognize it for what it is. It's a sinful person killing an innocent person, and that's wrong, and it's just wrong, and I'm taking no excuses for it, and I'm angry about it. How do I know that? Bottom of verse 11. Should I not now demand his blood, that is Ishbosheth's blood, from your hands and, uh, circle this word, this little three-letter word, rid the earth of you? It's a little small English word, but in Hebrew, it's rich. The word is to exterminate. It's, to, it's, to, uh, it's akin and it's a cognate to the word to burn or to consume. It means to completely stamp out, to wipe out, to get rid of in a, in a total and complete way. It's a very rich and strong word that he chooses. And what's the point of that? It shows me that he is mad. He's angry. Oh, but it benefited David. Didn't matter. Sin is sin. I take no excuses. I accept no excuses for sin in my domain. And I should be repulsed by sin. Not just saying sin is sin. I ought to be just angry about it. You know, the church has a problem today. Sometimes we're passive when we need to be angry. Sometimes we're tolerant when we need to be indignant. Do you recognize that as a problem in the Church of Jesus Christ today? I mean, we're just, things are cool. It's okay. I mean, people, you know what? Sometimes we need to be livid at the problems in our lives, in our church, and in our culture. They ought to make us angry. Did you know that in the Bible, all the times that the word anger and angry is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, and of all the times the Greek word in the New Testament, anger, anger or angry are used, that most of the times, more than half, over 50% of the times that the word anger or angry is used, it is attributed to God. God is the one getting mad. Now think about that. He's the perfect, holy, righteous, loving one, right? More times than not in the Bible, when anger is mentioned, he's the one getting angry. So I know this immediately from that observation. You can be righteous and holy and still get mad a lot. But you know what God's getting mad about? Sin. Do you know what you and I would be really wise to do? Start getting mad more often about sin. Get indignant about it. Jot this reference down. We don't have time to look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just jot it down. Verse 11 is key. It's the central part of this passage. He says, I wrote you that letter. I pointed out your sin. It produced godly sorrow. And out of that godly sorrow, here's some wonderful words. Just listen to them. What earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You know what he's saying there? Real repentance in the Christian life produces a kind of repulsion to sin that is so critical in this equation that we're not going to be godly without and in our world, we ought to easily see it. I hope you easily see it. Do you throw things at your TV? If you still have one and it's still plugged in, I don't see how you can be a Christian and not regularly toss things at your TV screen. I mean, I can't get through a half hour of the news without just being frustrated with what's being said there. And maybe I should just unplug it and get rid of it. But the bottom line is I recognize that in my world, the things that are being done and being said, and I know you do too, don't you? We recognize just how antithetical they are to the Christian experience, to the Christian life. And it ought to make us indignant. The question is, are we that indignant and are we that angry when we see sin in our own lives? Easy to blame someone else. Easy to see someone else's sin. Are we that angry about compromise in our own life? 
We need to be repulsed by it. David sees sin in his kingdom, his domain. He's angry. He's upset. He says, we've got to rid the earth of this. And we need to be saying the same things. It ought to repulse us, the kinds of things that we see. Let me give you one example, just an example. You could pick anything. Let's just pick this one. Ephesians chapter 4 says that there should be no unwholesome word come out of our mouth. Did you know that? shouldn't be one unwholesome word that, that escapes from our lips. And in chapter 5, the next chapter, I think it's verse 4, first half, it says there shouldn't be any obscenity, there shouldn't be any coarse jesting, shouldn't be any foolish talk. None of that, he says, is fitting for the Christian. It's out of place. Okay? Okay, there's just one command of God, and it's clear. God hates filthy, vulgar language. Question. Have you been exposed to any filthy, vulgar language this week? I mean, do we live in a world where we regularly hear those things? Is it just me? Is it all focused on me? You live in a world like that, right? Do they have foul mouths in your office? Are there people that you hang out with just sometimes because you have to at work who use language that is not fitting and it doesn't qualify to, to the high standard of Scripture? It would, in fact, be considered obscene, coarse, and unwholesome. Okay? We're, we're, we experience that. The question is, if I am a godly person, a man after God's own heart, am I repulsed by that? When I hear that word in that office this week, is it like fingernails on a chalkboard for me? Is it like I wince when I hear it? The godly person has to be that sensitized to sin. And if it ever were to slip out of my mouth, oh my goodness, that ought to repulse me most of all. That ought to ruin my day if in the middle of the night I kick the coffee table stumbling to the restroom, right? And I say something that is unwholesome. The Bible says it ought to be the most incompatible, frustrating, repulsive thing. I ought to look myself in the mirror and say, oh, sinner, sin. It ought to repulse us. Now, that's the high standard. That's the world we live in. We hear it all the time. Question is, how do I get sensitized to the place where it really bothers me? Because some of you, if you're honest, yeah, I hear that stuff, but I just, you know, I've grown accustomed to it, and I, you know, I don't say it, but I hear it, you know, I, I live with it. Keep your finger here in our passage and turn over to Isaiah chapter 6, and let me show you that you don't have to climb a mountain and hang out in a monastery for five years to get sensitized to hearing bad language or to saying it and being absolutely indignant about the reality of something un unwholesome coming out of my mouth. It can be something that I can remedy in, in 30 minutes in your life. It is something that only takes a moment. It takes an experience that can, that can be 45 minutes long. It doesn't take long at all. Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, the text says, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs having six wings. With two they covered their face. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying around. They were calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Wow, can you imagine this, this sight? You know what Isaiah says in verse 5? He says, this is really neat. Can I take some pictures? Do you have a gift shop here? Can, can, I, can I get a postcard or two? Can I get a tour? I'd like to walk around and check this place out. I've never seen anything like this. All that right there in verse 5. Do you see it? No. Verse 5 says, woe to me, I cried. 
I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now, that's a weird thing to say when you get ushered into the throne room of God, isn't it? I mean, you expect him to stand back and say, this is really neat. He doesn't say that. He says, oh, I've used some unwholesome language, and the people around me, they're using bad language. What kind of response is that? Look at the bottom of verse 5. Here's the problem with it. My eyes have seen the king, Yahweh Almighty. You see, when people get a sense of the majesty and the greatness of God, they immediately recognize in their lives it is a one-to-one -one correspondence. It is a necessary connection. You can't have one without the other. You really get to know God. You're going to be sensitized to sin. And I'm just using the example because that's the one we picked in Ephesians 4 and 5. It says, don't let anything unwholesome come out of your mouth. How can you be sensitized to it? A few minutes in the presence of God. You know, a few snippets of Bible reading at the lunchroom, a few Proverbs at the break in the afternoon, and a couple prayers before you go to sleep won't get you there. But you spend 45 minutes tomorrow morning with your Bible open, praying, spending time with God, seeking His face, meditating on His Word, and getting a sense of just how great God is. Then get in your car, turn on the talk radio, and see if you can handle it anymore. Get to your office and listen to people talk and see if it's not like fingernails on a chalkboard. How does it happen? How do I get sensitized? How do I become repulsed with sin because godly people I recognize who see cancer in their life and eradicate it? Those kinds of severely responding people, how do they do it? Well, they accept no excuses and they're always repulsed by sin. How do I get there? Spend more time with God. Is that a part of your schedule? I sure hope it's a part of your schedule. Not just something you hope to squeeze in because you give God your leftover time, he'll get nothing, right? And that's all it is, it's leftovers. You've got to make God and seeking His face a priority. A few minutes with God will sensitize you, resensitize you every day to whatever the sin is. It just doesn't have to be this one. It can be anyone. No telling what it is. But God, when you see it, you'll be appalled. And that's what we need. We need to accept no excuses. We need to be repulsed like David was. He was so angry in verse 11. Back to our passage, 2 Samuel 4. Third thing, look at verse 11 if you would. Not only is he taking no excuses for the death of Ishbosheth, angry as can be at the sin of an innocent man being killed in his bed. David, in verse 12, as though it were a surprise to us, gave orders immediately. You can see it, snapping his fingers, saying, Have these men killed. And they were killed. And he had their hands and their feet cut off. That's gross. Think that one through. That was the sign, the utter humiliation of a criminal. It was the ultimate act of, of showing the despicable nature of their sin. They were coming thinking give, they were giving David good news. And David says, no, I'm going to the extreme here. I'm going to have your hands and your feet cut off. And then as Deuteronomy suggests, it doesn't suggest, it tells people when someone has committed a capital offense like murder, they are to have their bodies hung publicly after they're executed, hang their bodies up so everyone can see how incredibly angry God is at sin and how important it is to do the right thing. And so that's what David does. He hangs the bodies of Rechab and Baana on these trees by the pool at Hebron. And there they hung until they were buried. And you're supposed to do that before nightfall. So they weren't there for long. But there they were as a display of his frustration. Now, question, would Rechab and Baana commit any more crimes or sin in David's kingdom? What's the answer? Of course not. Why? They're dead. <laughs> that solves the, the crime problem for those two guys, right? I mean, sin is no longer 
going to come through the avenue of Rechab and Ba'ana. It's not going to happen. Why? Because David cut it off. He said, no. If they're going to cause sin in my domain, they're done. He does what he can to respectfully bury Ishbosheth's head with Abner and the tomb at Hebron. That's the best he could do there. But he could say, no more from those guys. It's over. And he has them executed. You know, it's reminiscent as I think about governing my own life, of what Jesus said when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, close it. Is that what he said? If your hand causes you to sin, stick it in your pocket for a while. Give it a little time out because it's been bad. What did he say? Cut it off. Gouge it out. Throw it from you. What in the world is he talking about? Now, obviously, to take a thief who's a thief and cut his hand off, he can still steal with his other hand, right? So it's not an issue of, you know, oh, that's all I got to do. That's really easy. It's an issue of Jesus trying to make a point in the most dramatic way of all. If you have an avenue in your life through which sin comes, shut it down. How severe should I be with that? As severe as you can be. What's that do? Rakab and Ba'ana could no longer commit sin in David's domain. And you know what? If you have identified an avenue, and you should, every time you sin, say, how did this happen? If you identify an avenue through which sin comes into your life, it ought to be, as Jesus put it, cut off. It ought to be shut down. Is it a relationship? Oh, the relationship in and of itself is not wrong. It's no more wrong than an eyeball in my eye socket or a hand at the end of my arm. But it causes me to sin. It is an avenue through which I'm tempted. What's the Bible say? Cut it off. I put it this way in your outline number three if you're taking notes. Not only am I not going to accept any excuses, and I shouldn't, not only am I going to be repulsed by sin, and I know how to do that now, but thirdly, if I'm going to be a godly person, I need to make sin unrepeatable. Right? Make sin unrepeatable. If I've committed sin, I need to ask myself, how did it happen now? How can I make it not happen again? You may have a friend, and that friend always is a friend that you find yourself when you sit and talk with her. She's always getting you involved in gossiping about other people. And you've got a million excuses why you should be friends with that person. What's the Bible say? If that is the avenue through which sin comes into your domain, do what with it? It's over. Sorry. Spend my afternoons with someone else because, you know, I've got a problem here. Job? Think about that. If your job is a cesspool and every time you go there, it is leading you into some kind of sin and it may be making, you may be making great money there. It may be something you've been educated to do and if you quit this job, you'd be out on the street begging. You'd be a bum. You'd be penniless. You'd, you'd be, you know, a transient. Fine. But if that job causes you to sin, what's the Bible say? Cut it off. Make sin unrepeatable. You've got to deal that severely with it. David said, not only am I mad about this, I'm going to make sure this is not a repeat offense in my life. And in my kingdom, these two boys are not going to commit any more sin here. You and I have to deal that severely with sin. Relationships changing, job change perhaps, how you do your job, who you hang out with. All of these things need to be reevaluated if they're avenues of sin. And that takes a lot of discipline, doesn't it? I mean, we're going to need to be disciplined people to take no excuses, to be repulsed, and to cut off and make sin unrepeatable in my life. I thought of that as I was watching uh, Michael Johnson break the world record in track and field. He ran the 400 meter. Some of you are into this, big in Europe, not too big in the United States. But he ran the 400 meter in, what was it, 40, help me now, 43.18 seconds. You know what that spells? Fast. 
is really, really fast. And he's broken all these records, but amazing guy. They showed it, I was watching it, they showed it in super slow motion. This guy's body is a work of art, right? Now, I'm not weirding out on you here, I'm just saying, I was seriously impressed. As this guy was running, and they were showing it in super slow motion, he was, I mean, every single muscle cell in his body was just chiseled out, and it was working in harmony. It, it was artistry in motion. As this guy was just, I was just, wow, as I laid the remote control on my belly, you know? <laughs> I thought, that guy. And grab the Cheez-It box, you know. <clears throat> but I said, I said, that guy didn't get there, right, by sitting around eating Cheez-Its. This guy, he's disciplined. You don't break world records like that by, you know, doing what you feel like. You recognize that, right? I mean, the days he didn't, he wouldn't feel like training, and he had to train. He didn't feel like lifting weights, and he was lifting weights. He didn't feel like stretching out, he was stretching out. He didn't feel like running, he was running. He felt like doing stuff he had to say no to. He felt like a Twinkie or a Ding Dong or whatever it was that he couldn't eat, and he was saying no to that because he was disciplined. You know, Paul said they do it to get some perishable wreath. I mean, oh great, stand on a, on a platform, you get some metal around your neck, they sing the national anthem, all that's fine and dandy, but it will mean nothing a hundred years from now. Do you know what will matter? Is the disciplined fight that you put forth this week to eradicate the sin in your life and saying no to whatever area of compromise, whatever avenue of sin, and saying, I will be a disciplined Christian. Just like Romans 6 says, I will make the members of my body slaves to righteousness. And sin will not be master over me. Oh, we rely on the Spirit, I understand that, but don't be so passive in your theology that you think it's easy. It's not easy, is it? It's a lot of work. I commend you to that task this week because it is so important that we work as hard as we can to be severe in our response to sin. An important challenge following a serious message on the severity of sin. You're listening to Focal Point and Pastor Mike Fabares. His title today's message, Dealing with Sin in Your Own Domain. And you can listen again online anytime when you visit focalpointradio.org. If you're still looking for a gift-ready book for the pastor, scholar, student, or theology lover in your life, we've got it wrapped and ready to send when you make a generous donation to Focal Point today. The Essential Scriptures makes a great gift for the person who could use a handy Bible study reference. No more jumping back and forth between multiple sources. To give and request your copy of this practical book, call 888-320-5885 or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Your donation helps keep Focal Point on the air, reaching thousands with the light and truth of Christ. And another creative way you can support the ministry is with IRA Rollover. If you are 70 and a half or older, you can donate from your IRA without adding to your taxable annual income. And it counts as part of your required minimum distribution, too. So consider reinvesting those funds into a venture that'll continue to pay dividends long after 2022 with a gift to Focal Point. 
We'll tell you how when you call 888-320-5885. Or learn more when you visit focalpointradio.org. Look for IRA and estate giving in the drop-down menu under Donate. And if you've never let us know you're listening, today's the perfect day to connect. When you do, we're going to send you a special gift. It's an engaging and thought-provoking booklet by Ken Ham titled, From Creation to Bethlehem. Call now to get your free copy by Christmas. Our number is 888-320-5885. Or find it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you back again tomorrow when Pastor Mike explains the significance of hanging those festive Christmas lights. It's a glittering edition of Ask Pastor Mike, Friday on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.